Hello, Niv. Welcome to History and Nerd United Podcast. I'm your head, Nerd Brendan. Thank you for being here. Today we have Kate Winkler Dawson, author of All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind. It was great talking to Kate, who is a podcaster in her own right, and by her own right means she's a lot bigger than I am. Tenfold More Wicked and Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words. Great podcast. As soon as you're done listening to all of our episodes, highly recommend going over and listening to hers. Had a great discussion. And I think you're really going to like it, so I'm going to shut up and let you listen to it. Here we go. Kate Winkler Dawson. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Kate Winkler Dawson. Kate, thank you so much for coming on here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And as we already talked about right before we hit record, you are a professional at this, so I have asked you to take it nice on the novice. Uh, (laughs) I can't promise anything. So also what we were talking about is, uh, well, first of all, you started in TV production based upon your bio and everything like that, which is not something I've run into. A lot of times people come from straight journalism or they've been trying to write their whole lives, but you started in TV production. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, I mean, my evolution has been odd. I really thought at this time in my life at age 47 that I was going to be a pretty high executive at CBS News or at ABC News. I was working at all of these different places in New York and San Francisco and L.A., and I was really on the track to being a, a really solid television news producer, someone who would go out in the field and also work individually on shows. I was writing for networks. So there was there was a lot in, about journalism that I loved. And I was teaching at Fordham University. And, um, you know, I when I was getting my master's degree, I was at Columbia and... <laughs> I probably shouldn't even tell this story, but I thought I wanted to do documentaries. And a lot of people on television do want to do documentaries. You know, you have these stories and they're fantastic and you have to tell the story in less than five minutes and it's painful. So I wanted to do a documentary on a woman that I had heard of in Mexico and I was going to go on vacation with my friends to Mexico. And so I went to Columbia and I was a grad student there and I said, I need to borrow some equipment. And they said, do you take a documentary course here? And I said, no. And they said, okay, uh, I guess you're in journalism. You could take some equipment. And they said, but don't go out of the state. Are you going out of the state? And I said, no. (laughs) They gave me like $3,000 worth of equipment to take to Mexico, which I thought was going to get confiscated at any moment. And I think that was sort of the beginning. I just realized what a life of adventure it could be to do documentaries and television. And it's taken me all over the world. But the biggest takeaway for me is that it gave me a lot of practical experience that, unbeknownst to me, set me up for being in the world of podcasting because I worked for ABC Radio and I know how I shot my own documentaries. I ran my own sound. I know how to gather sound. I know how to operate in the field. I know how to get interviews. So having that background has been really helpful for me because I don't need a crew. I can take the equipment. I have my my own equipment and I know how to use it in good, good sound. And so I think just like any job, having practical experience that, you know, you're you're willing to do this stuff on the side to learn it has been really invaluable for me. I did not think podcasting was in my future. I could tell you that. I had not even listened to podcasts until probably three years ago. So I really, that was not in my future at all from what I thought I was going to be doing. I was nearly browbeaten into it. So I, I hear you on that. But I also think the statute of limitations has definitely run out on stealing equipment because you brought it back. It's really more of an acquisition it was. than anything else. My heart was in the right place, but I did lie. So I feel badly about that. <laughs> and I'm just glad none of it gotten taken. 
But even still, you're now you're doing the podcast and you're an author. So two quick questions. How do you find the time to do all of that? And second part, uh, when we turn off the recording, can you tell me all the stuff I'm doing wrong? I have no problem crying after we turn off the recording. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's really difficult in podcasting because it, it still feels new. I know it's not, and, but it feels still new. And there's so many different people doing different things at different levels of experience. You can listen to a podcast. I listen to podcasts sometimes, and you can tell that the person doesn't have a ton of experience with the technical aspect of it, and maybe not even journalism, but they're just so engaging and so interesting. And that is such a powerful medium to be in. And I would say I love writing books. I love documentaries. I love teaching. I'm faculty at the University of Texas. Uh, I teach full time. So I, I don't have time to answer your question. There is no time. I have the most insane calendar with so many color codes. My kids just they don't understand any of the things on my calendar, but everything it makes sense to me. And I just have to really manage my time. Like when I'm done with this interview, I have to write a thousand words tonight on an audiobook I'm doing for my publisher. So a thousand words. And I'm not going to write one word more because I, that's my goal. And as soon as I hit my goal, I stop. And I had a really interesting, and maybe this is applicable to anybody who's creative. I read a really interesting interview with Eric Larson, who's a, a great author. He wrote Devil in the White City. And he said one time, someone said, so, you know, when you're working your way through a book and you need to stop for the night, what do you do? How do you stop? Do you finish a chapter? Do you finish a sentence? He says he stops in the middle of a sentence which I think is so interesting. And I try doing that. He stops at the middle of the sentence because he knows that the next morning, no matter what, at a minimum, he can finish that one sentence. And you, <laughs> so whatever does it for you, I guess. <laughs> so I have adopted that. So, I, you know, I'm going to write a thousand words tonight and I'm, I'm pulling some sound bites for an episode of Tenfold More Wicked, a season of Tenfold More Wicked that's going to air next year. And so I'm, I have to listen to these sound bites and tell my editor which sound bites to use. So I know that's going to take me a while. So I just my schedule is pretty crazy, but but I do the best I can. And then, of course, I've got these kids that uh, are 12 and want my intention all the time. But that's what the dog's for. <laughs> and, the, and the pup and I'm getting him a puppy, too. So. <laughs> Well, the thing that I took from that is that I can't complain about my schedule for at least three days. That's what I'm going to go no, with. No, you can complain. It's all relative because there are people who, you know, I for somebody who does everything I do. So, you know, I teach at UT. I've, I'm always writing a book. Right now I'm writing an audio book. Next year it's going to be, you know, a traditional book. I've got three podcasts now with Exactly Right. For somebody who does all of this stuff... I have an incredible amount of time to watch the stupidest television you can think of. I mean, I watch like bad TV, like Real Housewives kind of TV. I was about to say, you need to name them. I want to hear them now. Well, I'll tell you what I'm watching, and I'm not going to say it's stupid because I think it's wonderful. It's the Indian Matchmaker TV series that was on Netflix. They have a new season out. And I just wasted about two and a half hours today when I should have been doing voiceover work. I just wasted time watching it. But sometimes you have to do that. So I, I you can't feel too sorry for me because I do take time to, you know, work out and do things that I want to do. I see my parents every day. I go to my parents' house every day and hang out with them. So yeah, it's about balance. That's not wasting time. That is self-care. That's what we say nowadays. It's self-care. 
It is self-care. It is. It would be better if it were a little bit more exercisey or, you know, <laughs> something a little more a little more productive, but uh but I guess that's the not the definition of self-care. But I enjoy it. I don't I don't know. I had a good time today. I just sort of laid around with the dog and watched it. So. Well, I can nerd about about out about podcasting with you the whole time, but Let's get to why we're here. Okay. All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder, and The Race to Decode the Criminal Mind. True crime story. I really like this on a lot of levels because this is not a straight, oh, here's the murder, here's what the guy was like, this is what happened after. There's a few different aspects of this, but what brought you to this story and what made you say, hey, this is this is a book that I need to write? So originally when I found out about Edward Ruloff, who is the subject of the book. You know, Edward Ruloff was this man who was an expert in linguistics and just a brilliant person. And he was also a killer. And he was accused of killing four members of one family and then killing several more people. And some of the greatest minds of the 19th century sort of defended him and said, well, let's not put him to death because his brain is so valuable that we want, you know, to at least preserve him so that he can finish this theory that he had started. So I had read about Ruloff for years, and I thought this is going to be a good book. And I hadn't developed it all that well. I put together a proposal. I sent it to my editor, who is at Penguin Random House at Putnam. And um, she said, I like the idea, but it needs to be developed more. And then she ended up buying what would become my second book, which is a book called American Sherlock about a forensic scientist. So I kind of forgot about Edward Ruloff. And when I decided that I wanted to try to do podcasting and I thought, okay, well, this is the kind of podcast I had not really heard what the kind of show that Tenfold More Wicked is. I had not really heard that with the sound design, people walking through the snow and, um, you know, the music. We have an original composer and the storytelling and, of course, talking to the relatives of these people who lived 200 years ago. I kept thinking, well, what is what stories am I going to pull from? And I have a little folder of failed book ideas, and Ruloff was in there. And so I just thought, I've already been in contact with the family because that's something I do. I try to contact the family in my books or my podcasts or anything. I already knew the Scuts, um, who, were, who were the main family, the family that he did all this stuff to. I already knew the Scuts. And so, um, you know, I said, well, I'm just going to go back to, to Ithaca. They're in Dryden, which is outside of Ithaca. I'm just going to go back to the farm and... I'm going to turn this into a podcast. And then after I did the podcast, I started really thinking about this moment that Edward Ruloff had where he, I kind of actually literally glossed over it when the show was on. Um, There's a moment where he's shackled to the floor of a jail and there's this litany of men who walk through and try to figure out what makes this guy brilliant, but also just a terrible person who's killed his own child and his wife. And it was terrible. And sort of this Ted Bundy. And what makes him like that? And I just started thinking, you know, I have always read about mine hunters from the 1970s. You know, the guys who were with the behavioral science unit. I just interviewed for Wicked Words, the nurse who worked with them, with the original mind hunters, But this group of men who interviewed him and tried to figure out, was it the devil that made him do it? Was he crazy? Was he, I mean, was he insane? What, was, what happened? What went wrong with Edward Ruloff? 
And um, I just realized that this that moment was really important. He really was the avatar for the criminal mind and why we look at the criminal mind now 100 years earlier than the FBI did in the 70s. So then I pitched that to my editor and just said, listen, I want to do kind of a big review of this is how we got to where we are about the criminal mind now. And a lot of it started with Edward Ruloff. And so we went from there. And I want to jump back because it's an important part and you mentioned them, the Scots, the family that is just destroyed by this man. I really like that they were not props within your book. It wasn't about Edward and taking this horrible man. And what happens a lot with Bundy things and things like that, it seems like true crime as a genre is moving more towards that. We're taking the victims and making sure that they are fleshed out characters just as much as these murderers are. And it sounds like that's important to you from beginning to end. It is. It's important. And it's a struggle because that's not what some true crime listeners or readers want. I mean, they really want to hear about Israel Keys or Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. They really want that fascinating part because killers can be fascinating. They're disturbing and they're also fascinating. My challenge has always been to build up the real characters, the real people in order to be as sort of compelling to draw you in as much as the killer does. In American Sherlock, which was my second book, it was very male-centric. You know, the killers were men, the investigators were men, my forensic scientist was a man, and I had a big challenge of finding the women. Where are the women besides the dead wives? You know, where are they? How do I highlight that? Just because as a woman who writes about true crime, I am often writing about men killing women. I mean, that's, that's really what a lot of crime is. So my goal has always been with the podcasts and with the books to try to look at diversity, not just focusing on the killers. And I I do think it's important to focus on the killers because I do think it can be preventative. But also, yes, looking at the victims, giving them a three-dimensional feel, you know, how much do we know about them? What is the life lost? And I think that's really important. And also, I, I will tell you, you know, this new show I'm doing, I'm doing a show with Paul Holes on the Exactly Right Network called Buried Bones. And we have always tried really hard to find people of color, people in marginalized communities to highlight those crimes also. And the struggle is real for the 1800s. It is really difficult to find. These cases were not reported on. If a person of color died in the 1800s in the United States, and many times in the early 1900s, it wasn't in the newspaper. It wasn't in police reports. It just never got reported. So now I'm working even harder to find those cases, which are even you know more rare than the case where you can really highlight a victim. And I don't want to sound too highbrow because, yes, it's wonderful that it's moving this way. But also, I could go upstairs and watch three hours of investigation discovery and be perfectly content. (laughs) No, I understand that. I think that there is something to be said where, you know, with true crime, people often ask me why women are so enthralled with true crime. The easy answer, which I don't which I think is an easy answer and not a very well-rounded answer, is preventative. Oh, you know, women learn not to walk at the parking lot at night. And yes, studies do show that women who watch true crime sometimes do change their habits in very tangible ways because of things they've seen on television. But I also think women, just like men, like a good story. I love sports stories. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. There are characters at the beginning. There's a conflict. Somebody changes. And by the end, there's usually a resolution. And crime is like that, too. It's just a, a different medium, you know. And so... 
What's difficult for me about contemporary crime is that the people are still there. So, like, I just had a really long phone call. Now it was a Zoom, a really long Zoom with two brothers who brought a case to me from 1963. It was their great-grandparents and their uncle who were murdered in Idaho, rural Idaho. And we were on the Zoom for about an hour and a half because there are so many family rumors that we had to decide, what do you want me to say on the show? What's appropriate? What can I confirm? What is just a rumor? And my utmost fear is hurting the family. And luckily, with the families that I've been dealing with, nobody has come to me and said, I'm upset about the way you represented us. And I think part of that is I work hard on the research. And of course, if there's anything controversial, it's somebody else saying it. It's not me saying it. You know, that's why I do interviews with people. But with this family, I just said, you guys, this is why I don't work with living people, because I'm so scared of hurting a family member, you know. And so we're just working hard to really sort out what's appropriate to talk about on Buried Bones when that episode comes up. Again, it just makes me uncomfortable, but they really need help. So that's why I'm doing it. But I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to do this again. I really like dead people from the 1800s and 1910 and all that. So I have have one from 1766. Actually, we're doing one from 1681 in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's going to be good. The further back you go, the more into it I get. I don't know what it is. Just being a history nerd, I guess. Well, you know, Paul is so funny. Paul Holes is so funny because on our in our first episode, which is going to land September 14th, in our first episode, he says, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Am I going to care about people from the 1800s? And the reality is, is you will, because I find a lot of information. We have a fantastic researcher. And I also find a lot of information to be able to explain what conflict or what happened that led to this particular murder, this particular crime. And throughout history, it's the same thing. It's money, it's love, it's sex, it's betrayal. It's just pure anger over something. Nothing changes between the 1500s and now. It's all the same stuff and it's all relatable. And that's why I love history so much. And this book is really a perfect example of that. Eberuloff, He shows up with this family. He's, you know, unfortunately, he's charming as hell. That comes through. And it's just, you could, it could happen right now. He shows up, he's charming as hell. Couple of red flags. Some things seem off, but he's so charming, right? How bad could he possibly be? And he's really inserted himself into this family before people really start to catch on that there's something off with this dude. And it's real bad. And that could happen today just as much as it happened back in this time. Yeah. And I mean, I I think we come back to the 19th century mind hunters. When you have a a society like Victorian America, where people are really relying on your looks, number one, a killer looks like a killer. He looks disheveled and wild eyed and wild haired. And that's what a killer looks like to them. And they rely on the handshake. We're going to shake hands and you make me a promise that you're not going to hurt me or hurt my family. And I believe it. And we don't really do that now. We're pretty suspicious. As a society, I would say we're pretty suspicious now. or We should be. And, uh, you know, in the 1800s, there was just a lot of faith that a man who spoke like 17 different languages and variations and was able to write in a perfect cursive and just he was absolutely brilliant. That was not going to be someone who would pose a physical threat. And he did. And he was incredibly manipulative. And it scared 
the bejesus out of people. I mean, it really did. It was so frightening for them. At any point in this book, he could be whatever he needed to be. He could be acting like an apex predator, narcissist, and then at the same time, utterly pathetic. If that's if that's who was in front of him, they needed to see pathetic. He could turn that on in a second. And then all of a sudden he's a rage monster the next second. Well, and that's part of the psychopathy. You know, in the first season of Wicked Words, I interviewed Catherine Ramsland, who is a forensic psychologist. She's pretty well known. And she spent a lot of time with Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. And she said that he was trying to describe psychopathy and his self-reflection on who he was as a person. So she said he came in one day and sat down and he tossed at her this little paper cube that he had made her. And he had written on one side, like a church church member. One side was public servant. One side was father. One side was husband. One side was serial killer. She said he just flicked it and it would just turn on its side. And he said, that's how easy it is. He said, we're not grounded in anything. Nobody, no one who has psychopathy, who does the things that I do, nobody really has grounding in any one of these. You can flip and be whoever you want, whatever happens, but you're never really one thing that people can count on. And I thought that was so interesting. And, you know, Ruloff and and BTK and, you know, Edmund Kemper and all of these people who you associate with psychopathy. They all have this glibness about them. If you look at the hair checklist for psychopathy, I mean, (laughs) you might see some people, some people in your life who check off some of those boxes. And somebody, I was talking about psychopathy the other day and someone said, oh, there's, you know, people with psychopathy are never around. They're 2% of the population. Sure they are. They're around. There's a good chance that you've met somebody with psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, more specifically. So I think that reading about somebody like that who presents perfectly as someone with antisocial personality disorder and narcissism from 1843. If that doesn't scare you, nothing will, because it's just reoccurring. It's the same people, different time period. I think it would be super interesting if somebody took the back couple chapters of a book and started to talk about a lot of the criminal theories about the brain and stuff like that. I feel like I read that in a book somewhere. Oh, it was this book, because... If somebody wanted to go check out Edward's brain, they can actually go do that right now, can't they? You could. If you were sneaky like me, you could probably pick it up, too. If you if you go to Cornell University and you go to the psychology department at Cornell University, his brain is on display because when he died and they looked at his brain, they discovered that it was one of the top brains in the world, largest and heaviest. He had a massive brain. And it explained when he died because he was hanged. <clears throat> I don't think that's spoiling anything. And nobody's going to be shocked that he <laughs> thank was God. executed. <laughs> thank goodness. And it was, I think, confusing to the people in the audience because he was choked to death. And finally, what they figured out is, you know, he's got this massive brain and this massive head and really, really thick cords in his neck. He ended up being strangled. And so when they finally looked at his brain, it was enormous. Now we know that the size of your brain, it's not the size that matters. It's more of the quality. And I believe it's like, you know, Einstein didn't have a ginormous brain, but he had lots of little neurons and things that were important. And Edward Ruloff, you know, it was so degraded that I would have loved to have had it scanned or analyzed. And it's been sitting in formaldehyde for (laughs) 
couple hundred years or so. And people have been handling it. I mean, the woman handed it to me. I wanted to take a closer look and take pictures. And she's like, here, hold on to this for a second. And I'm holding this jar full of a brain and nasty green stuff. So Ruloff represented the beginning of neuroscience, according to the people at Cornell, because he was the first brain to be purchased in the first brain collection in the United States, which was the beginning of comparative anatomy and the beginning of neuroscience. That's when they started looking at brains. And he was the first. So he was used to disprove that people of color, that women, that People with mental difficulties had inferior brains because you could see with his brain and other people's brains the similarities. Despite his size, everybody had the similar folds, and and so it was comparative anatomy was such a big deal, and and he was a part of it. And I will say that Edward Ruloff always thought that he would make history, and he thought that his brain was going to have an impact on the world, and it did makes this book great is you have a lot to work with because of a couple different things. But right off the bat, I want to ask this one. Is he one of the worst narcissists you've ever researched? Because he, to me, the way he was so pathetic, he was this and he was that. And, you know, a lot of narcissists, there's that grandiose sense of self, but it feels like he took it to another level. Is he top five for you on narcissists? Yeah, you know, he certainly was. And Edward was, I guess, technically a serial killer because he killed people and 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 there was cooling off periods. But really, he wasn't. He was what we would call a multiple murderer. And I would say narcissist for sure. And probably one of the biggest, I will say. I will say that the forensic scientist I wrote about in my last book was a pretty big narcissist. So <laughs> I did not, and he was the hero. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think that there are there are instances where people can try to harness their different you know negative traits and turn them into positive traits. But Edward Ruloff certainly knew how to shapeshift and he knew how to manipulate people like I've never seen. And that was what was interesting about writing about the time period when he was in jail, shackled to the floor with five locks on the door. And these men come in, theologians and psychiatrists, alienists, and there's a neuroscientist who came and, you know, there are are two journalists and they all come in and they talk to him and they hear virtually the same things. And they all come out with different observations and different opinions about what made him him. They just couldn't figure it out. And it's because nobody knew what psychopathy was. But he presents perfectly as someone who is a, has a psychopathic personality. But they just couldn't even fathom that. They didn't understand, you know, personality disorders or they just knew he wasn't insane slash crazy. It felt like a lot of these interviews were kind of the forebears of podcasters. As Just as I was reading, I was just thinking it out loud. These men were really straddling the line between getting details that were giving them context, which is sort of entertainment. What was your childhood like? Tell me about your two brothers. You know, your dad died when you were young. What was that like? They're searching, you know, and then the flip side is they're also gathering information that they all pass on to other people. They all have their own opinions, particularly the main journalist, Hamilton Freeman, who wrote Ruloff's biography. That's really wonderful. It's very reflective of both Ruloff and the journalist who got very, very, very close with Ruloff, so close that Ruloff tried to 
you know, give him a big old open mouth kiss in hopes that the journalist was hiding, uh, you know, a razor blade in his mouth so Ruloff could either escape or, or take his own life. So there's a lot of manipulation there that I think you can read throughout the pages. You know, when I was doing this research and I was reading the story, every time I think that he was going to finally do something, like he's on the run and he gets a job teaching at a university in North Carolina and he starts to head to North Carolina and everything goes to hell. You know, just when you think things are going to change, he's finally going to do something right. Everything is going to be OK. Either the fates are against him or he sabotages himself. So it's pretty hard to beat a character like that to write about. And a big piece of this, and I don't want to talk too deep into it, but a big piece of this, he has a theory on language. And I'm not going to go any further than to say theory because you breadcrumb this thing through the book. And then when you unleash his full theory and put it to the light of day, it's horrifying and hilarious and, and a little bit of everything. So I don't want to ruin that for anybody. But how important was his theory of language to his longevity? If you take that piece out and he's just a very smart killer, are we still talking about him? Or was that kind of the piece de resistance that made him that much more interesting? Well, I think a couple of things made him interesting. One was he was able to outwit a lot of people to try to get out of the noose, which he did. You know, he represented himself when he was on trial originally when his wife and his daughter disappeared. So I think the reason we're talking about him now is, of course, you know, the claims that he made of being able to find this key to unlock the origin of the human language, which would essentially mean if I spoke fluent English, I could teach a Frenchman fluent English in one week because Ruloff believed that there was a really like mechanical, systematic way that languages were created. Like there's a key and he thought he figured out the key and he didn't figure out the key. That idea that he struck on, I think, was interesting because, you know, I was just doing the the audiobook for it now, and I was reading through Richard Mather, who was the language expert, the professor at Allegheny College, or no, the professor at Amherst College, who went to go visit him and who quizzed him on Greek and Latin and all of these, you know, philosophical texts. And Mather said, listen, this theory is not so great. This guy is incredibly brilliant. He just doesn't have a good theory. And I think what made Ruloff really interesting, besides just being so intelligent and, and such a narcissist and, and, you know, somebody with psychopathy, obviously, is that the idea that he could solve a big problem in the world made the world make a decision, right? He has this thing. People are starting to get convinced that this theory actually could change a lot of things in linguistics. It's very powerful. It's an interesting idea. It's vague enough where you're not quite sure if it's worth it. But let's not kill him until we figure out if he can finish the theory and it turns into something that can be helpful. So the book kind of asks this question of what happened to the people a hundred and something years ago. They had to ask the same question. If someone has something to offer so valuable and yet they're supposed to be put to death for something so terrible, what is their life worth? I mean, do we keep him alive and put him in an insane asylum and which is what they would call them back then, a mental health facility and let him work out this theory? What do you do? And so you have people like Mark Twain and Horace Greeley, who was a, a politician in the 1800s, defending him. Mark Twain defended him. It's just interesting to see what lines people have when it comes to ethics and morality around the death penalty, but also just around, you know, invention and intelligence and, and who in our society is worth what? 
And when it comes to science, I do like to jump back to things that obviously you look at them with today's eyes and they make no sense whatsoever. But if you read any sort of historical true crime, sooner or later, phrenology comes up. And it does a little bit here. Do me a favor, for the audience, just tell me what is it and what were they trying to prove back then? Well, phrenology actually kind of makes sense in some ways. So the idea was that there were sort of two different kinds of phrenology. True phrenology would be I would come over and put my hands on your forehead and find the bumps. And you could kind of correlate the bumps on your skull with the bumps underneath, which would correlate to the sections of your brain, which it was believed were connected to different parts of your personality. But the names were crazy. It was like, you know, if you have more bumps in this section, that's the animal instinct section. Like people thought Ruloff had a very large animal instinct section, which is why he murdered people. But then there's a benevolence section. So if you've got a bump at the back of your head near your neck, then you're probably a very giving person. And so this was, in a lot of ways, a justification for scientific racism. Because, you know, if you think about somebody is reading a part of your body, which you have no control over what your bumps are, where they are, that person can justify treating you in any way you want or they want based on these bumps. I mean, it was all bumpkiss, but it also did lead to psychology somewhat in the idea of there are certain parts of our brain that govern certain things that we do, right? There is sections that govern empathy, um, you know, and, and different areas. And so I think that phrenology was a little wacky and interesting, but, you know, overall, it was fairly useless. A friend of mine at the University of Edinburgh teaches a phrenology class. He's in the neuroscience department, and he showed me his um, phrenology head. And I couldn't even really understand most of the sections. It was like, what was it? Well, there's animal instinct and benevolence. I think there was like a familial values section. I mean, really kind of <laughs> like in some sections, I think they just made the words up. You know, it really was a way to try to look past your exterior and figure out what really made you tick, which if you could imagine made some people pretty uncomfortable. Well, I hate to let the science nerd out, but it's crazy how much about the brain we still don't know with all of these oh, advances. Yeah. I would love to see in a hundred years what they're going to look back on and be like, did you see what those idiots used to think in 2022? What a bunch of morons. Yeah. My friend who's in neuroscience in Scotland said it's something like he felt like it was like 5% of the brain we understand, which is such a, a small amount. Edward Ruloff dabbled in phrenology which doesn't surprise me because it's a little bit of a grifty, you know, sleight of hand, snake oil salesman. And snake oil salesmen, boy, did they thrive in the 1800s. You could sell anybody anything in the 1800s and they would believe it. There's so many different sort of religions out there and products out there and just different personalities and kind of anything goes. And then there's no nationalized identification system. So there's nobody requiring you to show an ID. So you can just hop on a train or a steamer on Lake Erie and go anywhere and disappear. It's so easy to disappear. And like you said, this is timeless. Show up somewhere looking smart and sounding smart. You can confuse a lot of people or convince them to a lot of different things that they normally wouldn't go for. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of the shyster. I like watching things about frauds. I find it completely fascinating how people get away with that. You really, really have to have a sense of confidence about you, which is ironic because people with psychopathy often have low self-esteem. So it's an interesting dichotomy. What, what I read 
my expert, I was just voicing this over today. My expert says, who's an expert in uh, in neuroscience at the University of North Texas, Craig Newman. And he says, you know, people with psychopathy can get away with a lot because they have charm. They can emulate feelings they don't have. But he said, eventually they foul their own nests. He said, they just can't help it. They are self-defeating and there's only so much faking it till you make it can get you, even in this country <laughs> where we fake things a lot. Eventually people figure out who you are much of the time. And if you are someone who has psychopathy, but you're the head of a corporation, then you might not ever get your uncomeuppance because I can't remember the stat, but it's a little startling. So wait, what is it? Let me see if I get it right. It's in the book. 2% of the male population, the general male population, has psychopathy. 60-something percent of the male population in prison has psychopathy. And then something like 10% of the heads of corporations have psychopathy. So you see where people go. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, we're in a renaissance of documentaries on stuff like this. For the listeners, first you're going to listen to Kate's podcast. Then once you're done with that, then you fire up Netflix. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can watch from there. But for this book, one more thing I wanted to ask specifically on this book. As I mentioned, it's not linear. There's some jumps here and there, and you reveal a little bit more going along. Why did you decide to make it not perfectly linear and make this not necessarily time jumps, but kind of reveal things slowly over a period of time? I'm not usually creative about stuff like that, so I sort of surprised myself. The way it's structured is you actually meet Edward Ruloff before his execution. He's in prison, and he's with the journalist who's been with him by his side through this whole thing. And we tell Edward's life story and the crimes going backward as he meets each person. So with every new person that enters his cell in 1871, Edward has to retell his story over and over and over again. So eventually the two stories line up together and we are in a contemporary time, 1871, and Edward Ruloff's in prison and he meets the journalist Hamilton Freeman. And then the story is linear after that. You know, I wanted to show how all of these different pieces were coming together because Edward revealed different things to different people for manipulation. You know, for Oliver Dyer, who was a really well-known journalist, he wrote for The Sun in the 1700s in New York. Oliver Dyer was a devout Christian. And to the other journalist, Ham Friedman, he... Ruloff called himself an atheist, essentially, and said he studied the Bible, but it was an academic pursuit. It wasn't for, you know, spiritual release or anything. But for Oliver Dyer, when Oliver Dyer, the religious man, said, tell me what you feel about God, Edward totally switched gears and said, well, you know, I I feel like there's something out there, but I'm not really sure. He said it more eloquently than I did. But, you know, I wanted to be able to show that while you're learning about this man's life, he is feeding a load of bull to some people and omitting things from some people that he then adds into stories for other people. So you really feel levels of manipulation. You never really know the truth from him. Well, I think we actually already answered this question, but I like to put a pin on this at the very end. Founded History Nerds United because people say nonfiction is boring. Oh, who says that? <laughs> a lot of people. Uh, trust me, a lot of people. So, oh, give me a break. <laughs> so you put one of these obviously very misinformed, misguided people in front of you. How do you sell them all that is wicked? Why do they need to read all that is wicked? I think the book really tells a good story. I think you read about somebody who had a really unique life, who made some choices that I would have never made, who 
uh, took a lot of chances. I think you learn about psychopathy and the criminal mind and why it all matters and why the victims matter. And really, this is a book not just about Edward Ruloff, but about his family, the family who pursued him for 30 years. They would not stop until he was caught. And that's incredible. And that's one of the things that I really want to get to. The heart of the book is the scuts. It's not him. It's the scuts. They lost four people because of this man. You know, they finally got the results that they wanted 30 years later. Well, Kate's fantastic book. Everybody needs to read it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. All That Is Wicked, out October 4th. Great true crime book. Go out and get it, nerds. You will enjoy it. I guarantee it. I'm not going to give you money for it, but I guarantee it. In the meantime, reach out to us on socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Head on over to the blog. Leave us comments. Leave us reviews. Hopefully five-star ones. And stay safe out there, nerds. We'll see you next time.